0: Well, good morning. I'm excited to share with you today. Thank you, Anita, for reading uh, that, that amazing passage of Scripture. I love they added the RAR in there. That's awesome. Uh, you know, uh, That's the kind of skills you need if you're a mom reading to kids or you know, maybe, Lord willing, a grandma reading to kids someday. Uh, that's the kind of skills you need when you're reading, and, and I love how well you brought that to us this morning. This is an is a interesting passage of Scripture. Um, it, it starts um, with the who the audience is, the elders among you. But I want to before I get into that, I want to just say what, one thing that sort of seems implied in the whole passage, and that is it seems to be implied in the whole passage that people are in relationship in the body of Christ. People are in connection, that there are those that are elders that are called to, to give leadership. And then there are other ones that are younger um, that are called to follow, and and there's different things described here. But I think the big thing is that Peter seems to assume that people are not solitary followers of God, but part of a flock under the shepherding of elders. Um, So it seems like uh, that seems like the given. So if people are uh, living in relationship with Jesus, but they're not in relationship with other Christians. It seems like this is just an assumed uh, thing in Peter's teaching, and I think it shows up in the, all, all the New Testament teaching as well. So to the elders among you. I'm thinking about who I'm speaking to this morning, and I, it, though it is written uh, to, it seems to, this first part is talking to church leadership, I think it's something that if you're feeling like, well, I'm not one of the key leaders in the church, or I'm not one of the elders, Uh, Good, I'll just sit back and hear what they should do. Uh, I think there's lots that this can apply to your life as well. If you're in any form of spiritual leadership, I think there's stuff in here for you. So you might be a pastor or you might be an elder. You also might be a parent. That's spiritual leadership. You might be a life group leader. Uh, You might be anyone who leads in any ministry. Uh, There might be people in your life that you feel they are under your care, that you have a responsibility for them spiritually. And so all of us can take the principles that are uh, here written specifically. Now, the, this, is the, this is guidance for church leadership. But the, the reality of church leadership is, the idea is that it filters down. It filters down. Like, how your leaders lead you, hopefully, is good and healthy, and then you begin to imitate that as a good example, and you lead like that. And then people who follow you, they learn leadership from you, and they imitate that. Right? Uh, In our church structure, um, I am led, or uh, my covering is the eldership board. And so they, uh, how they lead me, how they care for me, how they, you know, help me to do my job or keep me accountable, all those things that they do in my life is a blueprint for me. It helps me. It's an example for me. I look to that and go, oh, and that's how I should be as a leader to those that I lead. So when I lead the staff team, I Take what example of the elders, how they've led me, and then I try to lead that way. And hopefully, again, a good example becomes another good example. Becomes a, so when the staff lead the many teams that they oversee, those teams see good leadership. And there's teams underneath those, and they see good leadership. And all the way down, people uh, lead well. It's a, it cascades down as people lead well. And So, again, it's written to those who are... The elders among you who in the local church back then, a lot of those local churches would have been quite small, maybe the size of a good, good, uh, maybe an oversized house church of sorts, you know, bursting at the seams with a small place to meet, and uh, maybe 20, 30 people, some of them, the elders were to lead well because they were reproducing themselves. They were reproducing that that style of leadership. So I've been... Fascinated by this passage, this passage through the week and, and reading it, I read a whole book uh, on the title um, by Larry Osborne, How to Lead Like a Shepherd, and I found that quite helpful to me. And then uh, I'll, I'll say the other big source that has influenced me uh, last week when I was reading this in advance was John Piper's outline. He, he had, a, I liked his outline, it's written in the negative, and he, he wrote his, uh, his, his uh, title for it was How Not to Lead a Church. <laughs> how not to lead a church. So let me just give you, I'll give you a bit of his outline and then I will, I will uh, push on into some other things here. So John Piper, uh, how not to lead a church. He said, obviously, in this first passage, there's, there's three big ones. Now let's read the passage and then we'll come back to Piper's commentary, okay? To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care watching over them not because you must but because you're willing as God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain but eager to serve and not lording it over those who entrust who those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade so John Piper he breaks down these verses just basically on all the negatives. Not because you must. It's the first one that's listed. Uh, you know, lead like a shepherd, but not because you must. Now, why do people, why do feel people feel not, well, I mean, it's one thing to be willing to do something, but there's another thing to feel, I must, I must, like a compulsion. Why, why do people feel that way? I think one of the great motivators to feel like you must is Fear. Uh, and you can lead out of fear, right? And um, it's a, a real thing. Lots of leaders feel insecure. The, thing that they're, the area they're called to lead, the people they're called to lead, they feel like, man, I, I feel a level of insecurity and, and a level of fear. And um, the answer to not leading out of fear, not leading out of compulsion, not leading because you must, is to be secure in your relationship with Christ. So you're not leading under a fearful compulsion. You're you're serving willingly because you're secure in your relationship with Christ. I'm going to give you very, go through this quite quickly and then we'll, we'll flesh these out a little bit in the second, uh, as we go on a little bit more. The second one is not pursuing dishonest gain. Well, why do people pursue dishonest gain as leaders, right? Why do they use their leadership position to make money or to get stuff or to get advantages in life? Uh, I mean... Making money, like making a wage, is not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, like, uh, they use their leadership position to gain advantages in life or sometimes take advantage of the people they lead. So that's pursuing dishonest gain. Why do they do that? Well, because of greed. Because of greed. And how do you not act like this? Well, if you're content. If you're content. Uh, Godliness with contentment is great gain, we read in the Scriptures. Godliness with contentment is great gain. But for a lot of leaders, and maybe not a lot of leaders, but a number of leaders, they don't see that as great gain. They see great, you know, advantage or financial uh, incentive. Those things are the greatest gain. But if you're content, then you won't be in it to pursue dishonest gain uh, because greed won't be dictating how you lead. So freedom from the love of money is a wonderful thing for a leader. Now, some, let me be clear. If you're leading and you're running a business or you're an entrepreneur and it's important to make a profit, right? That's important. You've got to put food on the table. You want to pay for your employees. You want to, that's important. We we would love for those who help our economy to run to do really well, especially in this season, right? We really want them to do well because there's some bills to be paid. So, but that doesn't mean that when you lead as a spiritual leader, it doesn't mean you, you don't. Ignore the bottom line, but it means that it's not, about, it's not about you're not taking advantage of the people that you lead for your own financial gain. Then the next one is not lording it over those entrusted to you. Now, why do people lord it over those? That's quite a phrase. Lord it over those who are entrusted to them. Well, I think it's because of pride. And we know that be pretty much because the antidote given in the verse is rather be humble. So we, how do we not act with pride? We have to live in a humble space in our lives, a humble involvement that actually sets an example for other people. So that's the, this is sort of the negative outline from John Piper. I thought it was just helpful. Not because you must, not pursuing dishonest gain, not lording it over those entrusted to you. So when a leader, when a leader grows in satisfaction in who Jesus is, they grow in security in their relationship with Christ. Right? You say, well, you know what? I'm secure in who I am in Christ. I know I'm His. I'm not. I'm not trying to prove that I'm. uh, You know that I'm the the best and the and the most religious. I'm not in some sort of contest to show who I am. I'm relaxed because of the gospel. I'm relaxed because I know I belong to Christ. Now I'm coming to give my best, but I'm not. You know I'm not living in that insecurity. I'm not living in pride uh, because how can I live in pride? Everything I have in life is because of God and others who've come alongside of me. I like, like one of my uh, first mentors, Lauren Tebbitt, he, he, um, he uh, would say this quite a bit. He'd say, whenever you see a turtle on a fence post, you know one thing, that it didn't get there by itself. And that's how leaders need to view the, where they're at, right? You say you can rise to the highest levels, but you better remember that God allowed you to be there, or, and also that other people helped you along the way. So pride just really doesn't fit for a leader, and humility is, is, is better to be clothed with humility. So as a leader grows in satisfaction in Jesus, as they grow in um, security in Christ, as they grow in contentment uh, uh, in, and, and away from greed, and as they grow in humility, they'll, they're growing in freedom from fear, greed, and pride. And that kind of leader helps the church become healthy. So wherever you lead, in whatever level, that helps the church become healthy. Also, if you're leading in your family, and you're not, uh, those things are not tying you up in knots or controlling your decisions or, or the things that are your great compulsion, but you're free of those things, you'll bring health to your family as well. So how do you lead like a shepherd? How do you lead like a shepherd. Well, I think you start with thinking like a shepherd, thinking like a shepherd. And this is really uh, something that just gets taught again and again in in the scriptures. Um, There was, um, was, uh, uh, let me just say this, Peter's teaching sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching on this topic. Let me give you uh, Jesus' teaching. Uh, John 10, 11 to 13. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Now, this is not to insult those of you who work as a hired hand, uh, but it is telling about a real reality in life is that when you uh, take ownership, you, you invest yourself better into that thing, right? So some people talk about buying versus renting. I don't know. I've, I've done both in my life. I've rented uh, apartments or I've rented places, and I've also bought, right? And you know what? When you rent it and something goes wrong, you're like, eh, not a lot of anxiety about that. Well, unless your landlord won't fix it. But generally, not a lot of anxiety because you're like, that's someone else's problem, right? And so, um, normally, if you're a good renter, that's not a problem. But sometimes, some renters will go to the extent of saying, like, I'm not even going to, oh, it sounds like something's going wrong. It sounds like something, oh, that toilet's been leaking for three months. I wonder if that's going to wreck things down. Oh, I won't even worry about it, right? Because you're not invested. You don't own it. Now, I'm not saying every hired man is negligent like that. Some of them are very diligent. But there is a difference when you're invested. There is a difference when you've bought in. And um, there's a difference when you think, not like someone who's sort of come temporarily to sort of use this as a stepping stone to something else, but this is your lifelong pursuit. So that's why, where we can see a difference between maybe a farmer and a hired man. The farmer says, this is me for the rest of my life, potentially. This is what I'm doing. This is my one thing I'm doing. I'm managing this land. I'm growing these crops. I'm managing these animals, whatever it is whereas the other one might say, well, I'm going to do this job until I finish my education. I'm going to do this job to help me get to another job. Or, you know, they might have another step down the road. In leadership, how much are we present with our people? How much do we really believe that the work that we're doing and the leadership that we're offering now is really something that we're investing in for the long term? I mean, you might not be in that position for a long term, but are you investing well for that person's life? Someone else might grab the baton from you later on, and they might pick up where you left off. But are you leading in such a way so then that baton pass happens to the next person who gives leadership in that area or to those people that they'll have gotten a really good baton pass because you, you led well? Are you thinking like a shepherd? So in a way, a hired hand, if they were to do some um, mental gymnastics like that, could, be, could become quite a good hired hand if they really thought like the owner does, if they really thought like the farmer does, if they really thought like the shepherd does, the one who takes ownership in that way. So Jesus, in his teaching, says there's a difference between the hired hand and the shepherd. And um, so that thought, like how do you, how do you lead um, not like the hired hand and like the shepherd, is that you really, you really step into the ownership of the, of the results for the person. In fact, there's a question that probably you could ask. Um, in fact, maybe you could assess your own leadership with this question. You say, there's a question that the, the hired hand asks, and that is, what am I getting out of this? What am I getting out of this? And then there's a question that the shepherd asks, and that is, what do the sheep need? What do the sheep need? Right. I don't know if any of you who I, I, I'm sure some of you own your own business or you or you may be supervised in some place and you've been a part of the hiring process. It's very interesting, isn't it? So you have uh, the one who would maybe do the hiring and the person who's looking to be hired. And uh, it used to be that I think in, in days of your maybe past, it was mostly that the employ the one who's doing the hiring would ask all the questions. And now there's sort of a different day. And I think it's okay that that some of this has happened, but now you have people coming to be hired and they're asking a lot of the questions. Well, what what about these perks and what about these things? And it sort of goes back and forth generationally, but it also goes back with the economy, right? When the economy's red hot, you can get a job anywhere. So the employee, the one who wants to get hired, they have the upper hand so they can come in and say, well, what are the benefits? and Can I get my vacations right away? And what about this? And really, because the employer has trouble... Uh, you know, they know they can go anywhere else. They're going to sort of juice it up. My brother was a, um, he had his own company for a while, and it was in uh, the ups and downs of the Calgary uh, oil market. And uh, so in the ups, he was promising his employees lots of crazy things. And so, in fact, he had a couple employees where he had, in order to hire them, because they were, he knew he'd, they'd be good, in order to get them to into his company, he said, okay, I'm gonna I'm going to get you a, he had his, his office was downtown Calgary. I'm going to get you uh, a really great gym membership at this really fancy gym as part of your hiring. And this gym, not only can you go work out in, they'll do your laundry for you. So that was one of the perks that he offered in that season when it was hard to get enough employees. So these, the employees he hired, they loved that. That was a great perk. It's like, yeah, so in my lunch break, I'll go work out, I'll drop off my stinky laundry, and at the end of my workout, I'll come back with folded laundry. What a great perk, right? Uh, but then it switches, and then it's, it's, it goes the other way. So is, what do the sheep need is what the shepherd asks. What do I get out of is what the hired hand or the hireling asks. Now, Jesus um, gave an incredible uh, talk about how to lead in his kingdom. In Luke 22, 24, 27, it says, a dispute arose among the disciples to which of them was considered the greatest. Okay, so you've got pride at work, at least. Um, Maybe insecurity also at work. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, I'm going to give you just a a visual here this moment uh, of this dynamic. Now, five years ago, I became the lead pastor at Hillcrest. So It was on my 43rd birthday. If you were here, you might remember I was sharing the birthday with the outgoing senior pastor, Dave Wicks. We both are March 8th babies, and on that day, we were together 110 years of age. And uh, I contributed part, and he contributed part. And, the, and I got given two gifts on that day, and this one was one of them. It's a towel. And on the towel, oh, this is the better side. Got it. And it's not backwards. I was given a towel. It says, appointed to serve. Now, it's interesting. It didn't say appointed to rule. It didn't say appointed to dominate. It didn't say appointed to show everybody what a big guy I am, whatever. It says appointed to serve. And so, again, my role. I came to understand it from even that first moment. I mean, I, I think I had some hints about it before that, but that was really a clear message, Right? We're giving you great responsibility. We're giving you significant authority. We're not giving it to you for your own sake. It's so that you can serve. And it's based on the model of how Jesus taught, right? He said, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, be the one who serves. And Jesus modeled that, right? And so the towel is perfect because the story of Jesus is when they came to the Last Supper and all the disciples with their dirty feet came in, and where's the servant who usually does does the cleaning of the feet? It's usually the lowliest among us who does that cleaning. And if there's no servant, then which one of the twelve disciples is the least of us? Does it sound familiar? They're just arguing in this passage we just read about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's the guy who never has to wash the feet? And so, it says that Jesus got down and washed his feet. Now, how did Jesus come to the conclusion that he should wash the feet? Or what were some of the factors involved in Jesus making that decision? Well, I think one of the um, big factors in Jesus being able to, uh, to serve in this way, to show servant leadership in this way, is what he knew about himself, how secure he was. John 13, 3-5 gives us an inside, insider's information on what Jesus Knew, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. This is John thirteen three to 5 Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So, okay, this is what undergirds what's about to happen. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Because Jesus knew he had all authority. The Father put all things under his power. He was secure enough to serve. He was secure enough to kneel. He was secure enough to wash dirty feet from stinky disciples who had also had stinky attitudes a lot of times. It's quite incredible. You know, there's an Old Testament uh, in the earlier, in the, the older part of the Bible, the Old Testament, okay, Days of Israel, in ancient Israel. There's a story that I think is a good one to, that goes with, that could go with this one. And it's the story of King Rehoboam. And King Rehoboam's father was Solomon. And Solomon built a great empire and a very wealthy empire. In fact, the, Isra- the nation of Israel had never been that wealthy and that prosperous. But he did it under very extreme situations. It's almost like he, was, he married a girl from Egypt, his, a princess from Egypt, and then it's almost like he acted like a pharaoh in some ways to his people, and he really uh, made them work very hard. In fact, some might almost say it, it almost bordered on a form of slavery or, or servanthood, which is what the pharaohs were practicing, uh, a little bit more like that. And... Um, so when he was passed away and the son, King Rehoboam, came to the throne, the people came with an appeal and they said, you know, working for your dad was really hard. And can, we, can you make our load lighter? You know, we, we will serve you, but just can you make it lighter? And, and so first thing he gets is in, he gets advice from the older men in the kingdom, the older advisors. And he says, you know, what, what do you think about this request? And this is their reply, 1 reply. Kings 12 Seven First Kings twelve seven says, They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. See that word throwing up, showing up three times? If you'll be a servant, if you'll show servant leadership, if you will serve them, if you'll actually love them, if you actually care about them, if you'll, I'd say, lead like a shepherd, they'll follow you. They'll serve you. If you show some consideration to what they're asking today, you won't have to worry about the 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 you know you won't have to worry about your throne. You won't have to worry about your reign. You won't have to worry about your position, because these people just follow you. In fact, they'll love you. And uh, that was the, what the older uh, men of the kingdom gave him advice in. But then he went to his peers, the young men of the kingdom, uh, the guys he'd grown up with. And he got their advice. First Kings 12, 10, and 11. It says, The young men who'd grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. A yoke is like a, a harness for an animal, you know. Um, so that's the imagery. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So, a bunch of young guys sharing their pooled wisdom from not much time said, Yeah, we'll show them. Show them what power is. Show them who's in charge. We'll show them you're a leader. You know what? To me, I don't, I don't know their lives, I don't know all these things, but this, is, this very much smacks to me of speaking out of insecurity. Speaking out of pride, speaking out of greed, and maybe speaking out of fear, all those things that were warned against in this passage. And what was the result? Rehoboam, who inherited the kingdom of Israel at its ascendancy, at its peak of power and might and majesty, and the nations of the world would come to see Solomon's wisdom and riches, and now he lost, all, he lost most of his kingdom within a week. All that had been built by King David, all that had been built by his son Solomon, all that had been handed to him, he lost in a moment because he didn't understand servant leadership. He couldn't grasp the wisdom of the older men. That you're called to serve. And if you serve as a leader, people will follow you. But if you want to show your power, you want to show that you're powerful, things will go badly. Margaret Thatcher, she was the Prime Minister of England, uh, and she had a, a statement I thought was quite cool. She said, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are one, you aren't. Quite a statement. You know what, that's the thing. If, if you're confident, so that Jesus and, and Ray Bowman, Jesus, I am powerful, all things are under my feet. So what does he do with that? He doesn't dominate. You guys, wash my feet. I have all authority. No, he I can serve. I can serve. If you're confident as a leader, if you know who you are as a leader, guess what? You can serve. It's a lot easier. If you're fearful as a leader, if you're insecure as a leader, you're always going to feel like you have to prove yourself. Like You always have to you know, make sure everyone knows you, know, you got what it takes, or, or you're in charge, or, or you're, you're the boss. And rash decisions come out of those things. You know that one of the neat things I think about the fact that this is 1 Peter 5, we're reading this, all this thing about uh, leading like a shepherd, is that Peter himself was one of the biggest leadership failures uh, of all of Jesus' followers. And many of you would, might know the story, right? He, he, was so, he was the one who declared. That Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and the Holy Spirit had actually worked in him to reveal that to him. And Jesus said that, and Jesus affirmed him. And on this rock, I'll build the church, and and you know all that that wonderful moment. Peter's like, man, I'm a big shot in this thing. And not only that, Jesus had three that he spent. Uh, he, they seemed to be there when it, when it wasn't just a team of 12. There was times where he had these, just him and the three, he'd had like basically a team of four. And so what they would do is at different pivotal moments, you see uh, Peter and then the sons of thunder, James and John, those three, were often there in pivotal moments. So Peter is probably thinking, look, the Holy Spirit told me that he was, uh, he was the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's amazing. I got to go uh, to see his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John, even though I said some dumb stuff after that. But still, I was here, I was there, I'm on the inside track. Wow. And then Jesus starts talking about, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, no, you're not going to die. Stop talking like that, Jesus. And there's a bit of a confrontation that happens there. And then, Jesus, I would die for you. I'll never betray you. I'll be with you, no matter what comes I'll be there. And he does have a moment of bravado in the garden where he pulls out his sword and lops off an ear. But when push comes to shove and, and Jesus is arrested and the Roman might of the Roman soldiers is on display and then people begin to ask him, do you know Jesus? He says, I've never, I never met the guy before. I don't know who he is. And he denies him three times. And at the, in the morning comes, Jesus has prophesied this and said, you know what, Peter, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. And then the rooster's going to crow. Morning's going to come, and the rooster's going to crow. And when you hear that rooster, you're going to know, right? That's what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. No, I would never deny you. I'll go with you to death. I would. But all of that, I think, insecure and proud, I'm the man, bluster, melts away when he's faced with people who are in his face and saying, do you know the one that they're about to crucify? Because he doesn't want to be crucified, and he... He's scared and, and he denies Jesus three times. And now here's the shame of the, of the rooster crowing and, and he weeps. So even after Jesus is raised from the dead, you've got to think Peter's going, I blew it. I was, the, you know, I was the one. I was one of Jesus' favorite three. And, and I might have even been the, the, the best of the best. And now, that's over. I don't think I can lead in Jesus' kingdom like I once thought I'd be able to. And so he goes back to fishing. He's out fishing the one night, sort of doing a night shift of fishing. And uh, he's coming off that night of fishing. They haven't caught anything. Or I'm mixing my stories a bit. But they come off the night shift of fishing, and there's a figure on the beach cooking up breakfast. And it's the resurrected Jesus. I love this. I, I just, I can't say it enough. Like, what kind of Lord do I serve? What kind of leader is Jesus? What kind of caring shepherd is he? He goes out to the beach where the guy who betrayed him or the guy who denied him is fishing and he makes him breakfast on the beach as he comes off the night shift. For a purpose. So they can have a really crucial conversation and it just goes like this. Peter, do you love me? And Peter, in shame, knowing what he's done, says, you know, Jesus, that I love you. And then he says this instruction to him, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Lead like a shepherd in the church. This is remarkable. I mean, like, how fast do we restore people who have stumbled? This is pretty, it's breathtaking how rapid this is that Jesus does this restoration. Now, it isn't, that's just not the end of it. He asks him two more times, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Then one more time, do you love me? Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Lead like a shepherd. So, if you've stumbled in your leadership along the way, that's not the end of your story. It wasn't the end of Peter's story. And God restored him in leadership and allowed him to come back into a place where he had a role to play in leading other people spiritually. And so, maybe you, at one point, you did lead more spiritually and you were giving care for part of the flock or people under your care, whether that's as a parent or a life group leader or, or at any other level. God loves to restore leaders who have stumbled. And uh, his grace is that big. So I want to just quickly shift to the latter part of these verses. Because it talks to elders and and it's, you know, I've been... There's more to say about this, but I've been reading this quite a bit, and it's challenging personally to me. I don't see myself perfectly walking out everything in here. I see myself challenged by some of the things in in this, and even the reality of what I've uh, been commissioned with, I'm challenged by that. So I'm going back to this, and I have been going back to this for a few weeks now, and I'll keep going back to it, because I think it's, it's really important for those who are elders amongst us to take those things very seriously. But there's a second part, and it says, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So, you know, you could take this a couple ways. You say, well, here's some instructions for people who are young. But, I just... At the stages that I've been through in my life, I can sort of see a little bit of a progression. Um, I think that this is not just a message directed at those who are elders or shepherds, but what about those who are younger? Maybe you're, you're, you're younger, maybe you aspire to be a leader or to be a spiritual uh, leader. Uh, maybe right now most of what you do is follow. You don't lead, but you follow. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.1 has a word for those who aspire. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer or an elder or a spiritual leader or a shepherd (laughs) desires a noble task. So if you're young and you say, you know what? And this could be if you're older as well, but you say, I I desire to do this. I desire to lead at another level. I desire to, um, God's put a heart in me to care for other people. That's a noble task. That's a noble desire. And so I think, coming back to the instructions that are in here, and I'll point out three to you, Really, they're really important. How you follow really is, is going to be an indicator of how you lead. I, in reading this, I've gone back and thought through my followership through the years. How well did I follow? How well am I currently following? But how well have I followed through the years? And sometimes... I can look back and go, oh, I'm so glad at that junction that I chose to follow well. I'm really happy about that. And then other points in my past I go, oh, man, I sowed some seeds of being a bad follower then. I really am hoping for a crop failure in the future. You know what I mean? Like, if you aren't a good follower, what happens when you get elevated to leadership? Well, you, you haven't learned, if you haven't learned the lessons of a follower, if you haven't walked through some of those things well in a healthy way, you don't know, you, it will, it'll translate into unhealthy things on the other end. I always think of the, the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. What you plant, you receive a harvest in later. So I look back on some of the things that I planted and I'm happy for them. Like some of the pastors that I've followed through the years and how I've... Uh, stood by them, I've been loyal, I've been, uh, I tried to help as as much as I could, and I'm happy for those investments. But then I look at other more seasons where I'm a little more ashamed, and I go, man, I wish I had followed better. I wish I'd invested in my own future better, right? So I want you to think about this. If everybody you lead in the future follows you like you're currently following the leaders in your life, will you be happy with that result? If you inherit followers who are like you are as a follower, will you be happy with that result? And uh, it's a sobering thing, but that's where it starts. It says, submit to your leaders. Submit to your leaders. I mean, if you, if you follow well, you're, you're, you're investing well into your future leadership. Hebrews 13.17 says this, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because you, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Now, I mean, we're talking about healthy leadership, good leadership. You say, well, I've been under toxic leadership, or I've been hurt in the church. Those are real things. I don't discount that at all. Lots of abuses happen in all sorts of levels of leadership, in all sorts of spheres in this world. Uh, There's lots of evidence of sin in leadership. But as much as leaders lead well, as much as they lead in a healthy way, as much as they don't ask their followers to sin or they don't lead them as an example in in doing wrong things, submit to your leaders. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So when you aspire to leadership, realize that there's a weighty thing that comes with you. You will give an account for how you lead. It's pretty sobering for me. Uh, It's pretty sobering for me when I think about it. And I I think for all of us, we should be sobered by the the weight of leadership. It doesn't mean that we run from it, but it means that we we take it seriously. And then it says, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So when you follow leadership well, you partner with them well, uh, their joy becomes, that, that lifts them, it makes their work a joy, not a burden. And then, out of that comes benefit for you, right? If if, they're, if, they're follow, if leading you is a drudgery, it's not going to be a benefit to you either. Work well with leaders. Find ways to partner with leaders. Sometimes you are following less than ideal leaders, and you have to make a character decision to make the best out of that situation. A great example in the Old Testament is David who the leader he followed wanted to murder him. That's about as bad as a workplace environment as you can get, I think. David's leader was Saul, King Saul, very insecure, very proud. And so when David excelled and did well, he tried to kill him. He was jealous. That's a challenge for older leaders. When you see younger leaders rising up and doing well and full of promise, maybe they're farther ahead than you were at the same age. Can you recognize it? So the thing that happened with Saul was he was like, wanted to, he kept thinking, well, I'll just keep sending David into more and more battles and eventually he'll die and that never worked because David would go win all those battles because God was helping him. So it was frustrating for him as an insecure leader. And then he... We'd get David playing the harp for him because he had an ability like that. And then when he'd do that, he'd throw a spear at him and try to pin him to the wall. I mean, then he took out his army and marched after him when he, David was hiding in the wilderness to try to find him and kill him. I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked like a bo- for a boss like that. You know what David did? Everybody on his team said, when you get the chance, assassinate Saul. God has already anointed you the king of Israel, and you're... You'd be way better king than this guy. He was a way better king. He wasn't perfect king, but he was a way better king than Saul was. And he didn't. He submitted to Saul in everything he could. So Saul would give him an assignment that wasn't sin. He'd go do it, right? If Saul was asking him to do something wrong, he wouldn't do it, but he would, he would do it, what, what Saul was asking him to do. And he clothed himself with the humility. There's the one scene where uh, Saul is coming into the cave, and it's the cave where David's hiding And he has a chance uh, to kill him. And all of his friends are saying, now's your chance. Kill him. Put a knife in his back. And he goes up and instead he takes his knife and he cuts off carefully a corner of his garment. And Saul doesn't even realize this. Saul goes out and he he comes out of the cave later on and he holds it up and he says, Saul, I I didn't kill you. I'm your servant. Why are you chasing me? (laughs) And one of the things he said was, you know, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. If God's allowed this person to be in leadership, I'm not staging a coup. Right? There may be times for civil disobedience and maybe there's times for staging a coup. But in David's mind, he just said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he submitted to his leaders. He clothed himself with humility. I mean, it's one thing to be anointed king and then to keep honoring the bad king that exists and saying, you're the Lord's anointed. David was the Lord's anointed. He'd been anointed by Samuel. He'd already had the anointing oil. You're going to be the future king of Israel. He knows that. And yet he didn't, uh, he didn't, uh, he was humble before the one who already had that role. And the final thing is embrace God's timing. In our text today, it says, humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, which he did for David, lifted David up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God will lift you up in due time. So as a leader in different stages of my life I had to sort of trust in that reality. I remember at a certain time sort of chafing. I can't remember the exact um, age I was at, but I think it was in my 30s somewhere, where I felt like I wanted more responsibility. I wanted more I wanted to influence things more. I wanted to have greater um, influence on people I, you know, I sort of wanted more I felt that within myself as a young leader and uh, I remember getting agitated about it you know I, I really wish at that point someone had come along and just read this to me you know cast your anxiety on him he cares for you see if you haven't been forgotten see if you haven't been overlooked you haven't you know God's got a timing for you and trust his timing his timing is going to be great and it has been When I look back on it, I realize all that anxiety I didn't need to live in. If I was just trusting God, saying, God, you know where I'm at. You know at whatever level you want me to lead. You know when you want me to lead at a different level. You know what kind of work that needs to be done in my heart before I get there. I can trust you. I can trust you. That doesn't mean you don't put out your resume. It doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It doesn't mean that you don't take advantage of opportunities. But under undergirding all that is a trust in the Lord so that you're not running after something that you must have. You're not living out of insecurity or pride or greed in your life. So today, as a leader, today as a leader, my prayer for you is this that you would grow in your satisfaction in God. You grow in joy in the Lord. You grow in your security in Christ. Because that's the thing you want to bring to the people that you lead. You don't want to come as an insecure leader. You don't want to come as a fearful leader or a greedy leader or any of those things. You don't want to come as one of those things. You you want to be able to really lead like a shepherd. And that is contingent on yourself being shepherded. This passage talks about when the chief shepherd appears. So, I mean, wherever you shepherd, wherever you lead, always remember you're an under-shepherd. You're not the chief shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And so the best thing you can do is allow him to lead you. Just like in Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I don't care what level you lead at. No matter how high you lead, you can be the CEO, you can be uh, You can be the premier, you can be the prime minister, you can be anything. You can go to the highest levels of leadership. You need a shepherd. No matter how many people you shepherd, you need a shepherd. And the Lord is that shepherd that you need. And so come back to the one who makes you lie down in green pastures, who leads you beside quiet waters, who restores your soul. That's the way you're going to be a healthy leader is you allow the chief shepherd to shepherd you. And David, who did eventually lead at a high level, wrote Psalm 23. He, as a king, said, I shepherd a nation, but I need the shepherding of the Lord. And he's the one who makes me healthy. If there's any health in me as a leader, it's because of my connection with the Lord. Would you stand with me and we'll pray together this morning. Lord, I I thank you for each one who's here today, and I I hope that there's just something that is embedded in them today from the scriptures that we've read, something that is helpful to them in their area of shepherding, in their area of giving uh, spiritual leadership. And Lord, sometimes we see the leadership that we give in areas, and we don't see it as spiritual leadership. We just see it as uh, leadership, period. But Lord, you've called us Not just to run companies you called us not just to um, manage areas of businesses you've called us not just to uh, manage a classroom you've called us not just to lead in the political realm or or in, in in different spheres of influence in our communities or in our nation you've not just called us to those things you've called us to advance the kingdom And so we take everything else seriously. We take it seriously, the bottom line and running the business and working hard and doing things well. We take all those things seriously because those things are important. But also we take this thing that we want to reproduce your leadership qualities in ourselves so that we can set an example that others can follow that's healthy. And God, I'll be the first one to come to you and say, "Uh, there's areas where I need you to... Help me areas where you need to uh, do some mentoring and coaching so I can be the leader that others can follow in a greater way. Lord, I want to grow in the joy of the Lord. I want to grow in my satisfaction in you. I want to grow in my knowing that you are shepherding me. I want to be secure in those things. I don't want to come to the people that I lead needing to get something out of them. I want to get it from you. And Lord, I pray that for every leader who's here today, that they would receive from you so that they could give generously to the ones that they lead. There's a demand on us when we lead. There's, there's people that have needs, and there's, there's complaints, and there's all those things. Lord, we, we want to be able to give because we... We want to be able to freely give because we freely receive from you. And so, God, help us in every area that we lead. Help us in the areas that we've called to advance... All sorts of initiatives, all sorts of programs, all sorts of things. But help us to advance the kingdom as well. Let us lead like you. Help us to imitate the great shepherd. We ask that in your name. Amen.